listening to the Carleton University Political Science Podcast, brought to you by the Department of Political Science at Carleton University in Ottawa, Ontario, Canada. I'm Asif Amit, one of the PhD students in the program, as the 2021 winter semester drew to a close just a few weeks ago. Carleton's Political Science Graduate Student Association held their third annual graduate student conference, Continuity Rupture, Politics in the 2020s. Featuring the research of graduate students from across the world, the conference also featured a keynote address by the incomparable Dr. Kira Ladner. Professor Ladner is not only an alumnus with the Carleton University Department of Political Science, but is also one of the most respected researchers of Indigenous politics in Canada, as well as one of this country's most celebrated Indigenous activists. On this special episode of the Carleton University Political Science Podcast, we're pleased to share Dr. Ladner's keynote address from the conference, where she discussed the topic of continuity and rupture as enduring themes of Indigenous resurgence and the fight for justice against settler colonialism in Canada. It is such a pleasure to uh, be back at Carleton, if even virtually. Uh, It has uh, such, uh, holds such fondness in all of my memories. Um, Even the dissertation writing holds fondness now looking back because it was a a time of uh, to really just focus in and 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 work on one project. Um, And you'll note from today's talk that that uh, I don't think has happened since the idea of just working on one project. I want to talk today really about uh, the breadth of uh, uh, my work right now. When I was asked to do this with the idea of continuity and rep or rupture, I thought that is indigenous politics. It is uh, the continuity is always rupture. Uh, rupture is is nearly continuous and has been nearly continuous since the colonizers first arrived. But that uh, rupture is also a very defining part of my research and has been for many years. So. I want to just play on those two themes as I walk through and I also just want to pay an acknowledgement I uh, teach at University of Manitoba I also run a research center here uh, called Mama Weepwin. I sit on Treaty One lands the homeland of the Métis and the traditional territories the continued territories of the Anishinaabe people but I come from Treaty Six Uh, Southern Saskatchewan, and so I also uh, bid uh, hello to uh, Treaty 6 and to my ancestors and relatives that uh, live in Treaty 6 and now in Treaty 7. When thinking about uh, this talk, I really thought about two things really that at the outset of 2020 uh, and Indigenous politics in the 2020s has been one of continuous rupture. And we forget because it seems like so long ago, it seems like forever ago since I was at Carleton only a bit over a year ago, one of my last trips. But it seems like forever ago that we were sitting and watching Wet'suwet'en and the situation at Wet'suwet'en erupt and this big rupture, this big rupture that then happened across the country as people from across the country 
stood up with Wet'suwet'en against a pipeline, but also really against a government that had refused to deal with traditional government. And so that's always brings me to um, where my PhD started and where my graduate work started. And I'd be amiss to not pay mention to this, that my work at Carleton was about traditional Blackfoot governance, traditional Nahil governance, traditional Cree governance, and looking at traditional political systems. And so what's so to me isn't just these the pipeline issue, what's so isn't just the mass demonstrations and the closure of the railroad, what's so is a standing up of traditional governance. And it is the beginning of 2020 and the beginning of a year of rupture. And that year of rupture drew to a close with on the other coast, on the other coast where we see the Mi'kmaq standing strong, demanding that they be their right to fish be honored, demanding that their right to sell their fish, their lobster, their catch be honored, demanding that their treaty from 1752 be honored. And so we have this year of rapture. So when asked, it's 2020 or the 2020s thus far have been this mass rupture in Indigenous communities. But this is nothing new. And many of us have been researching the edge of these ruptures for now for 25 years or more for myself. My work, as I said, at Carleton started with traditional governance. Traditional governance uh, was something that many profs at Carleton actually tried to talk me out of doing the work on uh, because it really wasn't something that could be dealt with in political science. It really wasn't. It was more story. It was more theoretical. It, was, it wasn't really what should be done. But that is a rupture. And what I, what I remember most about my work on traditional governance is that it begins with rupture and that at the beginning of most of our political systems, most indigenous political systems, that begins in a rupture. Haudenosaunee territory where many of you sit, their system of governance comes out of a time of great war, great unsettled, great animosity, but also great illness, a great sickness is described. And their traditional governance structure, the great law of peace comes out of a time where people came together under two leaders, really under one and his helper, the peacemaker and his helper Hiawatha. And that system of governance comes to be in a way, and it is founded on the idea of creating a, a peace, removing that rupture and creating that peace. Treaties, treaties between our nations were really also meant to create that peace in this moment of rupture. Treaty six, which I'll talk about later, comes out of this time of rupture and it is meant to try and deal with this relationship and really create peace and, and good governance, good responsibility, 
without that rupture. The Indian Act has been a continuous rupture in Indigenous communities. Many tried to deal with the Indian Act through dealing with constitutional reform. Constitutional reform and the failures of, of what was supposed to be uh, recognition of Indigenous nationhood and Indigenous rights treaties has led to an understanding and a, and a movement towards regender and resurging. And so here's the what I would say is research really still at the end of these ruptures and at the edge of these ruptures, research on the edge, and we continue to be on the edge and we always continue to be on that edge of the rupture, studying the rupture, looking at the rupture, but trying to also lead away out of that rupture. I want to just talk about treaties for a couple minutes because treaties are such an important part of my work. While I worked on traditional governance for my PhD, what I had actually went to Carleton to do was to continue my work on treaties. And then I fell in love with a different topic, as many of you will over the course of your graduate work. The big topic for me has always been did Indigenous nations cede sovereignty? And we have two types of treaties. We have uh, two types of historic treaties, peace and friendship, which are down east and in Ontario and Quebec, um, and then la so-called land session treaties in the prairies. And then, of course, we have modern treaties or land claims. And none of these have dealt with the matter of sovereignty. Most Indigenous people, most Indigenous scholars would tell you. I say most because some may say that modern treaties deal with the issue of sovereignty. The Micmac issue that we saw, this rupture that we saw last fall, has to do with the Treaty of 1752. And that Treaty of 1752 is there to, as I've said, deal with a rupture. And that rupture, instead of being dealt with, has continued. And that rupture that was supposed to be dealt with was really caused by the ending of this war between the French and the English. The end of this war, the Mi'kmaq had been allies of the French. They lived with Acadie, they were allies of the French. And so as France withdrew, really mostly out of North America, the English moved in and moved to establish peace with the Mi'kmaq, with the Mi'kmaq Confederacy, Mi'kmaq Nation. So this treaty is supposed to deal into oblivion with the hatchet. Put the hatchet in the ground, create a peace and friendship between these two nations. And so this is the this is really what this treaty is about, creating peace and friendship. There's multiple clauses, but I think that the most important are those dealing with this idea of peace and protection 
and peace and protection will be from the British government, the crown, his majesty, and that they will really have that most favored nation arrangement. There will always be there's this idea that there will always be a peace and that there will always be assistance by the British government for issues of defense. They call on the Mi'kmaq to help defend the British, but they also say that they will be there to defend the Mi'kmaq. That there shall not be war between them, but they shall live as allies as separate nations though. The most important clause as of late is the third clause on your screen. And it is said that the tribe of Indians, the Mi'kmaq, shall not be hindered from, but have free liberty of hunting and fishing as usual. And that if they shall think a truck house will be established, at the river Shubanakadi or at any other place. And that there will be merchandise therein and that there will be an exchange. There will be an ability for the Mi'kmaq to sell their goods at free liberty to the best of their advantage. Some really important things in this clause of the treaty. We see free liberty of hunting and fishing as per usual that the crown does not interfere they shall not be the indians or tribe of indians shall not be hindered by the actions of the crown or by its citizens there shall be a truck so there shall be free trade between these two nations and that those that wish to sell their goods to the British shall do so at the best of their advantage. They shall not be swindled. They shall not be, there's no limitation on the amount of money that they can get for their goods. They will be a free trade. Just to note the difference, that was a peace and friendship treaty. Treaty six, where I come from, is in the light green, the lime green. Just a couple things that one should note. While these are often discussed as land cession treaties, there is nothing in the treaty about ceding land. The treaty establishes a relationship between these two nations. Nehio, or Cree leaders, lobbied for this treaty for almost 10 years before the British uh, or the Crown's representatives, really Canada's representatives, came out and signed it on behalf of the Crown, because of course Canada in 1876 had no ability to negotiate or sign treaties unto themselves. This treaty negotiated on behalf of Canada or on behalf of the Crown really provided a set of rights and responsibilities for both nations, both Canada and the Nihil. And it's really important. We often say, it is often said that uh, there are, we are all treaty people. And if you are ever in Winnipeg where I'm sitting right now, you'll see a bus, a bus station or a bus go by and it'll say on it, we are all treaty people. 
That means that both sides have rights. Both nations have rights on this territory. Both nations have responsibilities on this territory. Rights for the Queen's people were the right to govern themselves. There's this understanding that the Queen's people will not be governed by Nahio or Cree law. They shall not be governed by our law. They shall be governed by their own law. And this went in the, the exact same direction for the Cree people. The Cree shall not be governed by the Queen's law. We shall continue to be governed and live by our own laws. There shall be two systems of law, two polities, and two nations, two sovereign governments. The other right is that the Queen's people shall be free from, um, I forget the word right now in English, they shall be free from basically um, a war and maltreatment from Cree people, that there shall be this idea of peace and good governance or peace and good order between the people and both shall treat them with respect and with, and with good and with love and with kindness. The third element for the Queen's people is that the Queen's representative, the Queen's people can cut down trees and put up fences. This is a big thing. Remember, Locke. Locke was a very instrumental part in, in Canada's and Britain's colonial policies. This idea of fences and the de demarcation of territory is this demarcating of civilized society and this demarcating of a civilized society that has the right according to the British law and according to international law to take over another land. So this putting up offenses was an instrumental part in the treaty and was very meaningful to the British, but it was also very meaningful to Nehio people. If you've ever driven across South Central Saskatchewan, you know that there's not a whole lot of trees. So while the Queen's people can cut down trees and can um, put up these fences. They had to ask the Cree which trees they could cut down and they had to compensate the Cree accordingly. And the fourth principle of the treaty is this understanding of you could use a plow blade deep of land. You could you could use the land for for the purpose of farming. Those are the queen's rights and responsibilities under the treaty. Nehio people got a medicine chest and a promise of help during pestilence and starvation, and a promise of education. Not residential schools, but a promise of education and then a whole lot of other promises, but we'll come to some of those later. I want to come back to the Mi'kmaq Treaty. I want to come back to Donald Marshall because Donald Marshall is really what allows this rupture that ends last year. Not that it ended last year, but it was at the butt end of last year to occur. Donald Marshall Jr., hopefully some of you know the name. Junior Marshall, as he's known, his father was Donald Marshall Sr., 
who was the leader of the Mi'kmaq uh, traditional government. Uh, he was a Gizikipton. He was a spokesperson of the, of the Mi'kmaq nation. He was a spokesperson from the Sante Mawiomi, the long-standing traditional governance that had gone back long before the British or the French or the Dutch or others ever arrived, even before the Vikings. Donald Marshall Jr. made history twice in Canadian law. 1971, I want to uh, pay note of this. Donald Marshall Jr. is uh, out with his friend Sandy Seal and late that night Sandy Seal is murdered. Uh, Donald Marshall Jr. is wrongfully convicted of the murder of Sandy Seal, his friend. Donald spent 11 years in jail. Junior Marshall spent 11 years in jail, always proclaiming his innocence, his family proclaiming his innocence, the nation proclaiming his innocence. 1982, Junior gets released and Junior immediately starts to go back out onto the land and go fishing. He said years later, when I went out to work with him, that that was his his place of peace that he no longer wanted to be in rooms without windows he could no longer stay inside he needed to be out on the land 1986 we should note that there was a royal commission in nova scotia that uh on the wrongful imprisonment wrongful conviction and on uh, mistreatment of donald marshall among other prisoners marshall got compensation following that royal commission and with that compensation, that monetary uh, compensation, which was a very small amount by today's standards, he went out and bought eel nets and fishing gear. 1993, Junior's out fishing. We know that he knows all about that 1752 treaty. I know this because I spent a lot of time with Junior. This was the first uh, project that I took up post PhD is, is looking at uh, the Marshall um, case and looking at this not only as a case from the Supreme Court, but as it was understood by Mi'kmaq about their traditional laws, about their traditional constitution. And we know that he knew this because his father was the Gijikipton. His father in 1978, 1979, went to the UN to try and stop uh, Trudeau Sr., Justin Trudeau's dad, on the patriation of the Constitution. His father and the Mi'kmaq were very involved in the patriation of the Constitution, trying to not only get Indigenous rights recognized in the Constitution, but also getting them protected and shielded from the charter and from the, from the intrusion of other governments. So we know that, that Marshall knew his laws. 1993, he gets arrested. He says immediately to those arresting him for illegally selling eels that he had the right under the Canadian constitution. He had the right to fish 
uh, and to sell the laws or to sell the eels under Mi'kmaq law. And he had this treaty of 1752, which allowed him to sell eel and to fish out of season because there is no eel season in accordance with Mi'kmaq law, which we know from the treaty that it protected the right to fish as they had always done, not in accordance with the crown's fishing season, but in accordance with their own. 1999 Supreme Court ruled in favor of the Mi'kmaq. There was a rupture, and I mean a rupture, and someone was talking a bit about this today, but there is a rupture that we know, know, know lovingly is the Lobster Wars or the incident at Burt Church. And you can go and take a look at, there's been a really good movie by Alan Isabonsolin on the National Film Board uh, to take a look at that. And probably the only time that I know of, uh, the Supreme Court came back on its decision three months later and said that when it recognized that the Mi'kmaq had the right to fish and to sell their goods, that it did so too liberally, or it came back and modified the decision, it narrowed the decision, and it gave, it created a new meaning to the Mi'kmaq right to fish. It limited the right, and it limited it according to one principle, that while the Mi'kmaq have the right to fish, and they have the right to sell their fish, they have to, they have a right only to a moderate livelihood. The Supreme Court comes up with this understanding of a moderate livelihood, largely out of thin air. It had been discussed in a previous case and that had been pulled completely out of thin air because in no treaty does it use any understanding of a moderate livelihood. So while non-native fishermen can go or fisher people can go, fishers, to use a gender neutral word, can go and make however much money they can, usually with two to 300 traps per boat minimum. Micmac fishermen were lucky if their fishing license allowed them to fish with 50 traps and most had very small and really unweathered boats. We see this come to a head in 2020. Micmac have been fighting against the Supreme Court case since, fighting to regulate their own fishery, fighting for the ability to regulate and to make more than a moderate livelihood to deal with the poverty that has really defined Mi'kmaq communities. I want to just note that in 2009, Junior passed on. I think that's important to remember. So while the first rupture of 2020 was really a rupture that we could see coming way back 
1999. It's also important to know that the rupture that we know of the Wet'suwet'en against the pipeline also predates last year. This has been a continuous rupture. On the screen, you see in front of you in the black and white picture, leaders from the Gitzgan and Wet'suwet'en nations, leader that we see in front of us is Dalgamuk from the Wet'suwet'en, Ingisde from Gitzan. These are traditional chiefs. These are not band council leaders. These are not leaders under the Indian Act. These are the traditional, the historical governments of the Gitzgan and Wet'suwet'en nations. And on the right, the picture in black and white, they are filing their court case against the government of Canada. 1997, they won that case. And that case is called Dalgamuk under over named for one of the traditional leaders that took it on. And you can see him in the screen in front of you, the picture in the middle, both Dalgamuk and Giste, the two leaders that took this case up. And this case was more than about a land claim. This case is about the rights of those nations within that land. This case always talked about as a, as a land title case, really the first Aboriginal title case to be expansive and to recognize not only title, but some rights to govern within said title. But the courts, well, they won. We know that from last year that they have been fighting for recognition in their other longhouses, recognition of their laws, recognition of their right to govern in their territory, recognition of their right to stop and to decide whether a pipeline could go through their territory. We know that this has been an issue since they filed the case and since that case was originally dreamed up in the early 1960s. This is a phenomenal history here. It's a history of traditional governments standing up against the Canadian state and standing in this era and in this era of really a constant state of flux and a constant state of conflict. So life is always on the edge. Life is always in conflict, or at least it seems to be in Indigenous politics. And it has been, and I've seen that since I was a kid. And the slide is really reminiscent of 
much of my learning and many of my projects. And it's interesting that I've gone from, in my mind at least, from being on the margins to being mainstream, and then I think I've gone back again. And why I say that is that my early work on treaties and Blackfoot governance was really on the margins of the discipline. Talking about Indigenous sovereignty 20 and 25 years ago was on the margins of the discipline. Talking about Indigenous methodology and using Nehio understandings of governance and Nehio methodology, Nehio method, research methods was on the margins of the discipline. Now we can find books and books and books on this. I've just uh, finished reading a PhD thesis uh, from UBC today that is uh, so fundamentally grounded in our language and in our law that I couldn't have imagined 20 years ago producing this. So I've really become more mainstream in much of the work. Treaty federalism, I think, has become mainstream or treaty constitutionalism. And this work that I've done has brought me from looking at the relationship between Canada and treaty nations and our systems of governance, indigenous sovereignties, the Canadian constitution, indigenous constitutions, really specifically Nehill and Blackfoot or Nitsidapi constitutions. And about 15 years ago, it started to bring me over to Australia. And Australia was building or had uh, set out on a path to develop Indigenous rights into their constitution. And I put these two pictures up because it really shows what but ends my work. Indigenous sovereignty. This relationship to settler colonialism of Indigenous nationhood, of Indigenous constitutional orders, of Indigenous political orders. And the fact that all still exist, and all still exist typically in conflict. The picture of the right, the original Aboriginal embassy, I chose that picture because that is on the laws, lawns of the parliament buildings in Australia. So it's right outside the old parliament house. We often joke that they built a new parliament building just so that the parliamentarians didn't have to look at the original, the Aboriginal tent embassy every single day. Aboriginal tent embassy have, has been there for over 40 years. That picture is taken at a point when uh, First Nations leaders are talking about being wary of the constitutional deal that is being talked about, and that is recognition without any recognition of sovereignty. So Australia moved to a preambulatory statement, unlike Section 35 of Aboriginal treaty rights, but a preambulatory statement which 
had no constitutional meaning, had, had no interpretive value. Australia is still working on their constitution. And a year ago, as the pandemic was called, I was on my way over to continue that work, but to also work on a treaty because treaties are now being negotiated in three states, as well as treaties are being negotiated with multiple peoples multiple nations in Australia and multiple nations are also negotiating and moving on their own treaties. So uh, we had taken this idea of a Buffalo Treaty, which had been negotiated between multiple, I think seven nations now, indigenous nations, the several states, several provinces, and moving towards the federal and federal governments on both Canada and the US on this idea of a Buffalo Treaty looking after the Buffalo Nation. So we were on our way over to talk about a, a treaty over uh, Indigenous jurisdiction and ind Indigenous responsibility and colonial settler state responsibility over the Great Barrier Reef. So taking from the Buffalo and going to Australia and going to the reef. And this was where my work was when the big rupture of the pandemic hit. I want to just make a note of a couple other projects that define some of the rupture that I deal with in my work on a day-to-day -day basis. I've been working on missing and murdered Indigenous women for almost 20 years. I started on a project while I was uh, just out of Carleton um, with the National uh, or the Native Women's Association of Canada and LAC called Sisters in Spirit. But my work on MMIWG uh, has really focused the last few years with the National Inquiry. I sit on uh, the federal uh, review or federal process. Uh, looking towards a national building a national action plan that will hopefully be launched sometime soon. I say hopefully because I think we're getting I think it's getting closer. I sit with uh, as a expert uh, advisor on that process or an expert uh, person on that process. Uh, one of several university representatives or several scholars alongside uh, national representatives of all of the national organizations, and then some of the data uh, people like Jonathan Dewar, uh, who is also a Carleton grad. So the National Inquiry was from 2016. In 2019, it released its report. We're coming up to the two-year anniversary. The two-year anniversary of its release is, of course, 2020, 2021 and June 3rd. Uh, missing and murdered Indigenous women is a issue which has taken me in completely different directions in terms of my research. Yes, I do the policy work, but I most of my work on this has been on the issue of data. And it's interesting to become a data expert on this because I don't actually deal with data. I've never uh, done a stats course, somehow managed to get through the PhD, 
at Carleton without my stats course. I guess I shouldn't say that publicly, but no one's going to take my degree now, right? Um, but MMIWG is a huge, huge, huge issue. I work with families and I've worked on putting together a number of uh, archives. My work on this started in creating an archive of digital media for the families to so that we could retake the way in which these women were being talked about. That archive will not be launched. It was funded by Shirk. It will not be launched in a public forum and it will be not be launched in a public forum because there's no way to get over some of the newspaper headlines and make those without making it just brings too much trauma. And I can talk about that later if we want. But my whole goal in this has been to do no trauma. Instead, we turned our attention to creating an archive that would be useful to communities. So after the community, some of the community members that we work with, some of the families that we work with, asked for the development of an archive, the development of a tool that would allow them some place to keep all of the information that they with whom they deal with with police. It is really a knowledge keeping app. So this is, I think, still on the apps, the i the Apple Store. I believe that it's processed through a number of different uh, apps, different platforms. It was a project that was designed in conjunction with community partners, Eagle Vision and Tactica. We were never happy from my team with the app. It got launched. Maybe one day we'll go back and do this, but it really is about providing a platform for families to transcribe and to archive all of their dealings with police all of their information that they gather themselves because so many families have been left to gather and to collect and become the detectives and the searchers for their own case. This is probably as much on the edge as my research could ever become and it even creates uh, contains plans of how do you do a, a grid search in a field for a missing loved one. Not the kind of research that most political scientists do. This has led us to our next project on digital archiving. As uh, Jonathan said at the beginning, I have a research chair in digital uh, sovereignties. And by digital sovereignties is really about data sovereignty, but taking it further and creating digital tools and digital warehouses, digital collections for the use of communities that are controlled by community that are there for community. Walking with our sisters was a showcase of or a collection of vamps that were collected to honor and to preserve the memories of the murdered and missing women. This was done by uh, Christy Belcourt. It toured for about seven years and two years ago it uh, after its last present public presentation was put to rest.
many of the vamps that you see uh, were have gone into sacred fires or have gone gone back to their makers. And so our job was to catalog and to preserve these digitally for so that families and friends and makers and loved ones could still have these records for community archive. And so we, my team, I think a few of which might actually be here today, uh, cataloged and took photographs of these, of these beautiful vamps. Vamps are the tops of the moccasins. It was a magnificent process. We did part of the collect, we did part of the photography, those that were being mailed back. We did those in the field in Batoche. We'll see the picture, we see the pictures of Batoche here. The exactly where the rebellion or the resistance movement, Metis resistance, another big rupture was in 19 or in 1885. And so in this place of rupture, we try and establish and, and deal with this rupture that is in so many families, Indigenous families, and that is our missing and murdered women. What's been interesting in this project is that uh, the digital software that's available for digital archiving didn't allow me to do what I wanted, and that is to create a crowdsourced archive. So I have been working with uh, now my second uh, set of software developers. Uh, we're on our second iteration of the system, and hopefully we will have a, a, an archive, a digital collection up and running. And we will also use the software for a multitude of other processes so, and projects. So uh, we've launched the website this week or last week just as a placeholder so that people could see what we were doing right now with the collection. I want to just take note. Prior to last March, as I said, I never completed my stats course. A stats course that I think was should have been completed for my PhD. Uh, prior to last March, this is as close as I ever got to stats. Uh, and this is also as close as I ever got to dealing with fake news. Walking Eagle News, a phenomenal platform. Uh, it, but it's still going. It's a former reporter from ATPTN that runs this. And Walking Eagle News reporting suge uh, suggests that 87% of Indigenous people have stood on a cliff edge in their regalia, silhouetted against a red sky. Just a phenomenal misconception. But this is as close as I ever got to stats until COVID. I'm going to spend the last few minutes just talking about this rupture that all of us have faced. And this is the last rupture that I'm going to talk about. Last year in March, April, April, exactly about a year ago, there came a call 
uh, from CHR, the Canadian Institute for Health Research, for a rapid uh, research projects on COVID. You'll have to apologize. I have a screaming cat beside me. Um, so this research project went in. I it is held or uh, hosted by Laurie Wilkinson, myself, and Jack Jack, Jack Jedwab from the Association of Canadian Studies. And it went in, and we got this funding. It is a mixed methods project looking at COVID's impact on Indigenous peoples, newcomers, really a socioeconomic analysis of Canada, the US and Mexico, three countries looking at really over representative samples of Indigenous people and newcomers and racialized communities. I was only supposed to deal with really the qualitative sampling and qualitative research, which is phase two, which is where we're in now. Phase one of the study was six to eight surveys with approximately 7,500 people with Canada, the US and Mexico running the same survey on socioeconomic issues, the impact that people people are facing with COVID, vaccines, lots of issues. So you may have seen these, these surveys, you may have actually participated. You may have also seen the weekly survey that we've helped in, with, and that is run by the Association of Canadian Studies and Leger. And you often see our surveys or the Leger Association of Canadian Survey, weekly survey uh, talked about in the news. What's really interesting is when you sign up for a research project and get involved and become a research partner, watch out. Uh, so the other rupture that happened in my life this year is that my research partner, the person that brought me on that said, oh, I'll only be a small little piece of this. We can fit it into your schedule. Lori Wilkinson, a dear friend of mine, uh, had a stroke in September. She's well, she's come back to work part-time. Uh, as of April 1st, but in April or up until April 1st, I was charged from the university with running these surveys, which I think is really funny having never taken a survey or a methods course. I want to just give a note, we, the first uh, survey was run Canada, the US and Mexico uh, in October. And then the latest one, uh, this is an incomplete survey. I didn't go back this week and get the most recent results and I apologize on that. I ran out of time before I was able to do so. So these surveys uh, were in the field still two weeks ago and so the n is actually much larger than that we have mexico in the survey as well but they were still in the field for indigenous people and racialized minorities and newcomers we were waiting for our results some big research questions on this project how is covid uh 
or how have COVID related government imposed regulations differently influence the mental health and well-being of Indigenous people, racialized minorities, or racialized persons and immigrants? And I think that this is a, a really important study. You'll see uh, this research starting to come out. But I just wanted to go over a couple, I think, fascinating results from the last survey. Political scientists, of course, were all in on government trust. And we have uh, Indigenous versus non-Indigenous government trust from the last survey. And I think it's interesting here that we see across the board that there is a lack of trust in government. There's a lack of trust in First Nations governments. There's a lack of trust in federal governments. And there's a lack of trust, of course, in provincial governments. And that, excuse me, that, that level of trust, that ability to trust in governments is way lower when it comes to Indigenous people. We see that there, this really differs between regions. British Columbia, Indigenous people are far more trusting of provincial government. Prairie region, remember, we have very right-wing governments in all three provinces uh, that have come out with some pretty negative and anti-Indigenous statements during COVID. We can see that there's a very uh, less uh, trust towards provincial governments. I think that these kinds of stats and, and understanding of the data and why this data exists is really important. I want to just move on vaccination intent. So we've looked at government trust. We've also looked at issues of vaccinations, anti-vax, uh, vaccine hesitancy, as well as rates of taking up the vaccine. And I think that this is really just really fascinating research and will be the probably several books and several articles will come out of this, both on Indigenous newcomers and Canadians themselves. Um, and I think that this is just uh, fascinating to watch how and why Indigenous people have been more hesitant than non-Indigenous people. And a lot of that comes from a very different history. And that very different history and a history in residential schools or Indigenous people had huge, huge, huge studies on them, on vaccines, on nutrients. And I think that Indigenous people are sick of being the guinea pigs of non for Canadian society and for medical research. This really shows some interesting stats on vaccine hesitancy and why vaccine hesitancy exists. And I think it's fascinating about misinformation and why misinformation exists or what information is being trusted. And I think that there's gonna be some really interesting results that we can get into and this comes also from open-ended questions on the on both surveys. And so I think it's going to be fascinating to get into some of this research. 
anti-vax not really being what I thought it would be. There's a lot of uh, stats on here that aren't quite what I thought that they would be. So it's fascinating, but I leave that for my team to engage and for our partners to engage and for students and other researchers on the project to engage. My own interest in this is really going back to that flux, to that constant state of unrest. And to those original questions and to those original issues of research, treaties, resurgence, traditional government, questions that have really driven my research and have really driven me through these moments of rupture. How communities exercise and taking up sovereignty or jurisdiction. How this has had an impact. How have other governments reacted to the taking up of this jurisdiction? Issues of treaty rights, issues of sovereignty, jurisdictional considerations. Here, I just wanna talk about my last minute or two, talk about a couple examples. We see uh, Pegwis First Nation exercising from the very beginnings of the pandemic, what I am now referring to as stealth sovereignty. And this idea of stealth sovereignty, simply taking up jurisdiction whether or not they have the delegated jurisdiction, whether or not they have the constitutional right under Canada's understanding of the Constitution. They're simply exercising their sovereignty and not asking permission and not asking anything. They put up roadblocks. When Manitoba was absolutely locked down during Christmas, and you could not have people from outside your home in your home over Christmas. Pegwis First Nation decided that it would open its community upon request. You had to request to be able to come home to students and citizens of its nation that lived outside of the borders of its reserves. It came up with a plan. It exercised its sovereignty. The province said it could not do so, and Pegwis simply said, take us to court. Minister, both Minister Bennett and Minister Miller got involved saying, of course, they have the jurisdiction. They have the ability to decide what goes on on their reserve, and they fall under federal health orders rather than being subject simply to provincial health orders. We've seen in Treaty 6, remember how I said there was a clause on pestilence and starvation? And that there's a medicine chest clause. We've seen Treaty 6 early on take up the whole issue of there being a legal, vac a legal obligation to vaccinate Indigenous people to vaccinate treaty Indians, to vaccinate treaty nations, and to look after vis-a-vis -vis this clause, 
of pestilence and starvation, there will be assistance provided to our nations during times of pestilence and starvation. So there has been a lot of lobbying, a lot of effort made to remind the federal government about their responses to pandemics of past, the responses to the H1N1 that was so poor that they didn't send out medical supplies, they rather sent out body bags to community and to do it differently in this time that they say reconciliation and we say treaty rights. So we've seen across the country this picked up. We see across the country Indigenous people being vaccinated at a different rate and under different regulations than settler society, really because of this treaty right. Also because Indigenous people are being hit harder than any other community in the prairies, in Ontario, in Quebec, by COVID-19. So this treaty, right, for pestilence and starvation assistance and for assistance through this medicine chest that was in a response to a rupture, the rupture of smallpox, the decimation of the buffalo, the starvation of people, really that comes out of John A. Macdonald's policy to terminate Indians and to rid the plains of Indigenous people and everything that we, so we lived on. That rupture sees itself again today in the rupture and in the response to this rupture, both Indigenous response as well as federal response on vaccinations. I think it's important to understand COVID as just another moment of rupture in Indigenous communities. And it is a moment of rupture that, like other moments of rupture, we'll, we look at different ways that we can act, that we can take up our sovereignty, that we can take up our rights, and that we can protect our nations. But we haven't done so on our own. You see time and time again, communities having extra vaccines because of vaccine hesitancy. You've seen PEGWIS, you've seen countless communities across the country as they have extra vaccines to vaccinate teachers and frontline workers and frontline people in neighboring communities. So with that I end, it is that relationship of peace that comes out of this continuous uh, rupture. And I end with really, and I know I'm now over by a couple minutes. I end with really this understanding that has been brought to me by my mentor, Leroy Little Bear, my uncle in Blackfoot ways, my uncle in Cree ways, that was very much an elder that saw me through my dissertation. Leroy Little Bear, professor uh, emeritus from University of Lethbridge, has taught at Harvard, has taught at Lethbridge, and has worked with David Vaughan, one of the quantum theorists, 
one of the lead, one of uh, the world's leading quantum theorists for the longest time. And they've worked on this understanding that Blackfoot have always had theories of quantum physicists, of, of quantum physics and quantum theory. And that really comes down in that whole understanding of, of quantum uh, flux is what undercuts and under underwrites is what underlines all understanding of Blackfoot governance, all understanding of Blackfoot politics, all understanding of Blackfoot society. And that is this understanding is that flux is constant. Ruptures are constant. We react, we rebuild, we try to do things the best way possible. That is the primary understanding of governance amongst Nitsudapi and amongst Nihil. And so with that, I think that that has become very much my understanding of, of Indigenous politics, not only in 2020s, but Indigenous politics is all about that flux. That flux is constant. And what I really wanted to do today is to show that that flux is also constant in research. Embrace it, live it, and don't let it ruin your graduate careers. Thanks so much for listening. Make sure to follow us on social media. You can find us on Twitter at CU underscore PolySci, on Instagram at CU underscore poly dot sci, and on Facebook at CarltonU dot PolySci.